Welcome to episode 82 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, our guest is Patrick Foley, co-host of the Startup Success podcast and ISV architect evangelist for Microsoft. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So the reason I invited Patrick on the show is I was browsing through iTunes, uh, looking at how texting was doing, uh, texting reviews, etc., and I noticed as I was browsing through that iTunes recommended this interesting little podcast, the Startup Success Podcast. So I clicked on that, and it just so happened that the latest one they'd released was number 85. <laughs> Started listening, and Patrick and Bob Walsh were talking about the Business of Software Forum. And Patrick had so much energy and enthusiasm about the event, and small software in general. I just, I knew I had to get him on the show. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, w- I was pretty fired up from that event. It was, um, it was a rare occurrence, and... It was one of those things that you actually wonder, it's like waking up from a dream and wondering, did that really happen? And just a couple of days ago, Mark Stevens, one of the speakers at the conference, made a comment on my blog to that effect. And it was such a relief finding out that someone else was experiencing that same thing. And he even used the word self-doubt, which was exactly what I was feeling. Did that really happen? Well, you know, we, uh, we, we interviewed uh, Patrick McKenzie uh, I was, last... I was listening to that, yep. Yeah, he was clearly very fired up about it. He said it was just something cool. you had to go for, go to, even if it was, um, even if you considered it expensive, that yep. it was worth the expense. And we also spoke with um, Rob Walling, who had the same yeah. opinion. Yeah. yeah. He, um, so it seems to be uh, a great, <laughs> great thing to spend some time and money on. Specifically, I met both of those guys. So, I, I mean, if you look at the list of speakers, these were all very approachable speakers. They're all very nice people. And it was not just a talking to kind of event or talking at. It was a getting together and experiencing our business with other people who are incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly successful. Patrick's a great guy, and he is, as he was mentioning on your show, he's almost not yet comfortable with the degree of success that is leading to a degree of celebrity for him. And Rob Walling is brilliant, particularly for micropreneur kind of people. So, if you're into that sort of thing, it's it's worth saving up your pennies and going. You know what's really interesting about both those guys is that when you talk to them, they don't speak in, in these broad generalizations like, oh, you need to have passion and you need to stick to your idea. I mean, those are important, but they really have very nut and, nuts and bolts kind of advice. Um, like when we're talking to Rob Walling, he, he, he can tell you exactly how you need to build up an email list for, say, your new software product that you're going to release and wh- how your email should be phrased and w- how often you should send them. You know, just, and, and when you're talking to Patrick, he, he can tell you very specifically about how you want to uh, do your optimizations and your A-B testing and all that. And that's extremely valuable because there's, always a, there's a lot of platitudes that you kind of read about startups, which... You know, so they're useful to some level, but at the end of the day, you need to have like a little more information about how to make things happen. I completely agree, and unfortunately, I'm a little stronger on the platitude side. I, I haven't actually <laughs> done anything. I don't have a successful startup I can point to, and that's really important to pay attention to when you choose your mentors. I happen to know a lot about Microsoft. I, you know, I'm, I'm not an idiot about most things. I, I have useful knowledge, but that is different from having experience with that level of success. Is that the old adage, we teach, we teach best what we need to learn most? Hmm. Is that where you're coming from with that? Wasn't intending to, but I think that's an optimistic way of looking at it. I, I hope you are right, because <laughs> I, I am, uh, I, I'm working toward that. 
Um, so, so as an ISV architect evangelist at Microsoft, what, what does that mean? What I would say is I help software companies succeed building on top of the Microsoft platform. Um, I pointed out at the, the conference in my little lightning talk, said, as most people know from reading Joel Spalsky, that ISV stands for Independent Software Vendor, which simply means software company other than Microsoft. Right. And um, it's funny how they phrase that. They just put everyone, or, everyone else is diminished and really just revolves around them. Microsoft is a sun and everyone else is just a little planet. Well, Microsoft's not saying this. I think Patrick's, Patrick's saying that that's just what the... the no, Microsoft is the one who came up with the term <laughs> ISVs, right? Whether or not we did, the point is valid that you're making right. that I love my company. I really love right. this company. And, <laughs> and I think I can do a lot of good for our mutual constituents, if you will, the, the, our collective business industry, et cetera, the, the things we care about, the three of us and um, anyone who happens to be listening, I think I can do a lot of good in that context working for Microsoft, more good than if I were on my own. That said, one of the challenges that Microsoft uh, faces and that people face when dealing with Microsoft is we are so large and have so many different people working independently to tr try to solve specific problems that there grows a certain just a, a size problem where there's 15 ways to accomplish something that are all slightly different coming from slightly different constituents inside of Microsoft. And specifically the point that you were just making, I believe that was Jason, is that Microsoft sometimes loses sight that customers don't care. Customers care about what's in it for them, as they should. And sometimes, you know, with all of our millions of acronyms that I am guilty of dropping and assuming people understand as well, it sends a message that, well, of course you should know what this means because this comes up in my quarterly business review. Are you familiar with the FY11 goals and QBR, et cetera? And it's companies of our size, not just Microsoft, but Microsoft is particularly relevant to software entrepreneurs. Companies of our size have a tendency to assume people know or care what we're talking about on these internal issues where they don't. From from your perspective, I mean, how has Microsoft changed its viewpoint over the last five to ten years with the rise of Google and companies like Facebook and Twitter? I mean, it seems that Microsoft, at least back in the 90s, Microsoft was the center of every conversation when it came to software. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you really couldn't talk about software without talking about Microsoft. Um, but nowadays, you know, obviously, they're still a massive company and a big player, but they're no longer this central to the discussion about the future of software. I mean, they're a part of it, but you know, uh, these other companies are often more a part of the um, the center topic. So I'm almost starting to feel sorry for Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're doing just fine, thanks. Um, uh, yeah, Microsoft's best quality, in my opinion, is our persistence. That Microsoft just keeps coming at you, keeps working, trying to fix it, keep going. And it's an earnest persistence. We do, in fact, really keep trying. So when, if, uh, according to what you're saying, we were kind of on top of the world, that persistence came off as arrogance because we had been right enough times in a row that, you know, hey, we were, we were confident, boom, 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 boom. I, I joined four years ago. Um, so I, I wasn't involved in, you know, that wild success part. Um, the... The, some of the specific changes that I think show that Microsoft is, in fact, willing to change are if you go to, go to port 25, for example, 
Microsoft is actually a pretty open company right now. You know, Microsoft interoperability is very real. There are teams of open source developers who work on campus at Redmond to make sure Windows works better with Linux and Linux works better with Windows, uh, particularly in the Hyper-V area and uh, in, in reverse on Zen, etc. There are a lot of initiatives that are, are, are pretty impressive there. Microsoft is still in the business of making money, so when it becomes more viable to, re- for example, recently Microsoft put Iron Ruby and Iron Python into uh, back into the into the community instead of kind of being the steward directly. Those you know decisions like that still have to be made in the context of making money. But that bluster that Microsoft kind of had maybe five or ten years ago because we were so big and on a trajectory that didn't seem like you know any force could have an effect on it. Well, yeah, that turns out other competitors weren't sitting on their hands either, and. Um, you know, I, th- I think in general, I, th- I think we just kind of deal with it more effectively than sometimes we get credit for. Well, you know what's interesting is I remember, um, I th- I, this may have been d- part of the antitrust case back in the 90s. Or, or, I'm, I'm not completely sure, but Bill Gates made, made a comment. He said, look, we're not worried about you know, these other big companies. We're worried, we're worried about the two guys in the garage. Which is funny because the two guys in the garage at the time were probably uh, Larry and Serge. <laughs> you know, proto Google, you know, and, and then of course, Facebook, right. A guy in a dorm room. I mean, that's where the danger lies for big companies. And of course that's where the excitement lies for people who, you know, for consumers, what's, what's, what are the new services, the new products, the new ideas of what's possible come from a lot of, I've never really understood that because what exactly is the competition that Microsoft faces from Facebook, right? And what what real competition did Microsoft face from Google but, until Microsoft decided to go head-on with Google? Well, okay, Justin, I mean, okay, well, Facebook's another thing. I'd be curious what Patrick thinks about that. But one thing you could say about Google right out of the gate is the uh, Google Docs and their office. You know, maybe that was just sort of like a... Um, uh, sort of a warning shot that said, "Look, if you get into the you search, we'll get into your business." <laughs> you know, and uh, you know who knows because Google Docs is not like they're iterating on that kind of crazy. I mean, it improves a little bit, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, anytime you get these behemoths in software, they, they just because they're not in a direct competition at the moment doesn't mean they can't get into competition with you in six months or year down the road. Just like with Apple and Google could start competing, or Apple and. Um, you know, Facebook on like social networking stuff. I mean, they can all just jump in one another's backyard at any point in time. What do you think, Patrick? My favorite Microsoft speaker is this economist named Charles Songhurst, this brilliant guy who, amongst other things, I assume spends his day understanding all these types of issues. And I've seen him point out that it turns out when a company is larger than about a billion dollars, it, they're almost compelled to diversify in certain ways. That below a billion, you actually should stay very focused. Above a billion, as Google was when they went into Google Docs, as you know, Microsoft obviously was when we went into Bing, that it's in their best interest to explore markets that to the rest of the world seem mm. uh, like a pretty uphill climb. And so it's important to keep that in context with those companies' actions and, and their major competitors' markets. Um, First of all, competition is a wonderful thing. I, I always say that. It's, it's what nothing focuses people like competition because if, it means if you're lazy, someone is going to overtake you. So I, I, I try to refrain from criticizing a competitor or 
making a competitive judgment that implies I have the experience of, say, a Charles Songhurst who does, in fact, study this every day. I just have opinions of a guy who works for Microsoft and observes this. So cautioning greatly with that. Yeah, if, if, if Google goes into Google Docs, even if it doesn't, you know, who gets to define what success is? Do their investors define success? Do uh, their customers define success? You can have a lot of different definitions of success. And if, if let's say, their entry into Google Docs forced Microsoft to up its game and produce SkyDrive and uh, Office web apps, not saying that that was a direct um, response to Google Docs, but I would say Microsoft had to up its game because, yeah, competitors were on the horizon, were starting to emerge. Um, if, you know, if that was Google's motivation, well, that seems like a reasonable thing to do when you have billions of dollars of cash and, you know, smart developers to put to work to deploy it. So they're going for the, the disruptive theory, basically, just to, just to make something worse and cheaper. Yeah. Uh, it, well, by the way, uh, Patrick, we interviewed uh, a guy named uh, Th- um, Thomas Thurston a couple weeks ago, and he has developed a model of disruptive theory um, in conjunction with um, Clayton Christensen okay. uh, of The Innovator's Dilemma. And the model, which has ex- proved to be extremely accurate um, in terms of, that's like 84 five percent accurate in terms of predicting whether startups can succeed or not really amazing and really the the core principles behind it is are are, are one of two things either you go into a new market you're disruptive because you're a new a completely new um offering that really doesn't have any competitors the blue ocean strategy but if you're going in a a red ocean uh, you know in red ocean you're going to compete against incumbents Mm -hmm. you the ones that are most likely to succeed are not but it's not by offering a product or service that's better or more expensive. It's offering something that's cheaper and worse, but getting better. So you're, you get in there, and, and because it's cheaper and worse, the incumbent doesn't really take you seriously or have to worry about you, right? And they're certainly not going to lower their prices to worry about you because, you know, you're crap compared to them, right? And they're just going to kind of, you know, joke, uh, joke about you or ignore you and then maybe laugh at you at best. But what you're doing is you're continually getting better. But then at event, at some point, you picked up so much momentum and you and not only with your market share, but also with your quality of your product that by the time they go, oh, wait a minute, they're getting pretty good and they pick up some momentum, they're already in trouble. First of all, that's the reason why I like Rob Walling's book so much because he points out the difference. You know, it's fascinating to talk about these multi-billion dollar companies. It's a lot more interesting to me if I were a businessman, if I were creating something new, you can do so much more when you don't have to consider how am I going to get to the first billion dollars in revenue, you know? Um, So, uh, yes, when I I saw that headline and I I will go back and listen to it. So I wish I had done so before so I could speak more intelligently about this. But, um, you know, I think it's, I also think it's important to recognize the definition of success is critical if you can disrupt the bingo card creator market, that's different from disrupting the office market. You know. So, so I've got a question for you. If your your podcast is called the Startup Success Podcast, mm-hmm. what what is your definition of success? Ah, um, very good question. I get you know the thing that jumps to mind for me is cash flow positive. I I think a startup is successful if it's making money. If you can, it, this is not trivial to do. If you can take a startup past that break-even point where it has the score. To me, that's the scoreboard. When the market tells you that your efforts are worth more than what you put into it, boom, that's a success to me. And that's a success whether 
you know, you made beer money for a party for your friends or whether, you know, you were acquired and made billions of dollars. It, and, and on the flip side, I think it, it also means to me that, for example, I'm not completely convinced Twitter's a success. I also have to acknowledge that I think Facebook is because Facebook is, in fact, making billions in revenue now. Um, but to me, uh, for my definition of success, until you're making money, you know, it, it's, it's kind of arm-waving. That's interesting. Well, I, 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 I agree with you, Patrick. I think that's absolutely cool. the case. And I think that it seems to be that over the last couple of years that there's been more of a move towards that um, mm-hmm. real-world thinking about – you know, because a lot of it has tied to bootstrapping. Because if you're bootstrapping, yep. that's how you have to think, right? I mean, if you're just yep. if you're going to get funding and you're going to build stuff, I mean, you can go out and have fun and yep. get paid a salary and you know get a lot of attention. And it kind of throws that reality of making money, it kicks it down the the road a little bit. Yeah, you're and being measured. I'm sorry, you're being measured on your chutzpah, not on your ability to make a business work. Your yes. ability to get funding is ability to get people to believe in you to a certain degree. Yeah, which is not the same thing as building a product that people are going to pay for, or building a product right. that's going to you know make money. And and so if you're bootstrapping, um, you're forced to think about the reality. You're optimizing the exactly the right function, which is you know, something that's good enough that can generate money. Because if it doesn't generate money, it's not a company. It's something else. It's a hobby. It's a it's a yep. movement. It's not a it's not a it's not a company. And uh, you know well, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about because I was thinking about. The, the, sort of like a comparison between the business of software conference, which is seem to be largely a bootstrapping con- a conference, um, compared to the startup school, which happened almost at the same time. And startup school was on the west coast. Oh, okay. business of conference, business of sure. software was on the east coast at the same time. Startup school was Y Combinator and it was all okay. about you know building stuff, getting funding. And going big, business of, conf- of software seemed it was about, you know, how do you build this software, nuts and bolts, how do you get, you know, customer base, how do you grow it, that kind of stuff. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that. Have, I'm going to defer in a certain kind of way. Have you had Jason Cohen on your show yet? A couple oh, of yeah. times, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, great. Um, I, I, my thoughts on that are I was greatly affected by what Jason said specifically at the conference, that the best Jason explicitly had a goal of becoming his of making smart bears successful and big enough that it could be acquired and have a successful exit for him personally. He was upfront with himself about this explicitly from the very beginning. All right. And his idea of the best way to do that is by making money, by bootstrapping, by approaching building a business with the attitude that you're not going to sell it is also, in fact, the best way to build a business if you want to sell it. It's not the only way, but I am strongly affected by Jason's assertion that it's the best way. I think he's got a point. So getting back to the comparison, um, I think it was also Jason on, on a recent blog post, uh, recognized that a lot of angel investors, I, I don't know a lot about why Combinator specifically, to tell you the truth. Um, my passion for startups is not a direct part of my day job, if you will. It's, it's kind of a, more of a, 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 it's a, it's a labor of love that I do in the context of my job. We have startup evangelists who it is their day job. Um, I'm not one of them um, at the moment. So Jason, I it mentioned that, you know, whether it's angel investors or um, 
startup organizations such as a Y Combinator, they're naturally going to talk about what's best for startups in terms that are actually about what's best for them. And those might not be the same thing. I think that's a very, very strong point for any startup founder to consider. Well, when you're, you know, when you're the age of the, of the people going into Y Combinator, which is like the, the 18 through 22. Uh, uh, just, that's not true, actually. That's not true. Um, there's a lot of them there in the 30s now. I mean, that's the misconception that they're all that young. I mean, there, are, there probably is a big lump, uh, you know, in terms of, ki- of like the college age, just out of college. But there's plenty. But there's a plenty of them that are in their twenty, in late twenties and, and 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 early thirties. I mean, I've read a couple. Well, for me, that's all. That's still young. Yeah, I think that, still whippersnappers. I totally. Yeah, still whippersnappers. Yep. Look, talk to me once you're over over uh, forty. Right. So <laughs> talk to me once you're then in the retirement home. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that you're a lot more impressed by kind of you know stardom and that t- that type uh. of thing. And I think that that whole Y Combinator is about impressing you know starlets. You know. Perhaps, and also, on the flip side, you're also less, you haven't encountered any meaningful failure yet that would make you think that you might not be able to get there. So when I was in my mid-20s and early 30s, I'm 41 now, I assumed I was going to get there. I had that brash confidence of, well, yeah, of course this is going to be me. You know, of course I'm going to be the next Bill Gates. And frankly, the, the usefulness I might be able to bring to this conversation, as you, as you said earlier, is the fact that I didn't. And I'm asking why, what prevented me from being that guy. There is a certain value to being so young, you don't know what you can't do yet, because once in a while, you find out that, wow, I did it. Well, the, the social network, did you see the social network? I have not yet. It's on my list. I, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's just a classic story of someone who's just becomes really, really successful in that space, because they're just basically... Yeah not particularly nice person <laughs> and they're just really really kind of um what's the word ruthless i think mm-hmm. I, I, a lot of the time it's just ru- ruthless and naive gets you rich <laughs> and, and yeah, i don't i don't know if the ruthlessness has to be part of the equation uh, but it's the relentlessness that is the most important part but and i would also say it goes back to the definition of success so at my presumably middle of life definition and, and look at success i realize that it is broader and I would not feel like a success if I were ruthless and rich. It's funny how um, de- definitions of things and perceptions become more gray as, as life goes on. Like when you're a kid, everything's true. black and white. <laughs> very, you know, very true. It, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I made a comment a couple, a few shows back where we, we talked a little about, uh, Jess and I talked a little bit about um, social network and uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And I said, you know, and I had read a few excerpts of logs of like chat logs and some email exchanges um, that were posted on the web. And, and specifically with, about Mark's statements in regards to the Winkle bosses. And how he was kind of leading them on, and he was going to screw them over, and that kind of stuff. Wow. And after you read, you know, a few pages of that you're like, Geez, "What an asshole!" You know, I mean, this guy has <laughs> clearly got no ethics, right? And you know, so I made that statement. I said, "Look, the guy, he's clearly a smart guy, and he's clearly a hard worker, and has vision, and and, and these kinds of things." But you know, he's clearly ethically challenged. I mean, he's not necessarily a great person. But it's interesting. I saw him interviewed on um, one of the videos of, um, from Startup School, and he comes across a really nice guy. And he seems like a really nice guy, really sort of just trying to create a great company. And what's interesting about life is that very few of us can say we haven't ever done some things that were not uh, that were not um, they weren't going to give a demerit. You weren't going to get demerit, <laughs> right? People are going to look and go, "That was not great." 
you know, yeah. Yep. you probably you should not have done that. And a lot of it is, you know, maybe on a smaller scale or was a long time ago or you and everybody else has forgotten. But the reality is that we've all done some things that aren't we've all we've all done it it's just that there wasn't social media and it wasn't recorded right. on the web yeah so you know? in a sense i you know i still think that mark zuckerberg is probably not the most ethical person that's ever walked the earth <laughs> by a margin but at the same time after he's being interviewed i said yeah it seems like he's a pretty nice guy so it's just this gray area you know i probably wouldn't say the guy's an ass but i you know i don't know i mean it's just interesting jason i'm really glad that that the whole PR engine, the, the fact that they spent like two months in boot camp working with him, getting him to kind of be nice and explain to him how to work with the camera. It's really worked on you. So their, their PR machine yeah. is fantastic. Well, maybe so. Maybe it does. I mean, maybe I have just been um, PR'd to the point of submission. But I just wonder, <laughs> I mean, you know, how... How do you view people who've made some, who, who, you know, because then it gets the Winklevosses are now multimillionaires as, as they, what, like 60 million or something or? Yeah, right that, that's, that's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> not much, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, you can't really cry for them, but, uh, and uh, I'm sure that other, his co-founder, he kind of screwed over is, is rich too now, but. Well, I get the sense with them. It's more of a, I mean, obviously I, I know nothing about them. I only know them as characters in a movie, but the way that the characters in the movie were portrayed was it was more about the competition of it. It was like them losing, you know, a, a game of football or something. I don't know. I, I, I tend to decide with them more. I, I mean, I thought they were, they, there's nothing that they did that was not on the up and up. You know, they were, you know, they were, uh, they were different kind of people than, um, than he, he was, but I mean, right. they were, you know, good students. They were top competitors. They didn't want to say they were put, they were trying to do everything they could to make, get this thing sorted out without them, you know, I, going to lawsuit. So. I'm not qualified to give philosophical guidance, and yet I do it anyway. So again, with that caveat, what, from, <laughs> from my own experience, what I can say for myself is that, and I have some experience on both ends of this equation of being wronged and wronging others, that the, I only have control over one side of that equation. And I, I tend to be happier when I don't do things that hurt other people. And when other people hurt me, I tend to be happier when I don't get all caught up in judging them, but recognizing that, you know, this is their journey and, you know, that's, uh, that's ultimately their problem more than, uh, more than mine. You know, I deal with the, the ouchie and then put a Band-Aid on it, move on, heal my own self, whatever. But that's, that's kind of the approach that I've had to adopt is, you know, I, I have to... I have to follow my own concept of right and wrong. When you talk about trade-offs, though, I will say, it, as I get older, it is astonishing. Excuse me, when you talk about um, getting older and not being able to speak clearly, it, as I get older, <laughs> when you talk about shades of gray instead of black and white, it is less about right and wrong to me and more about trade-offs. More and more things in life, I find out that I once thought this was black and white, this is right, that is wrong. And I'm like, well, it's more of a trade-off thing. If you do it this way, this happens. If that do it this way, that happens. Annie DeFranco, the independent musician, has a great quote. Um, the older I get, the less I know. Absolutely. Well, I, I was, Bob, Bob Dylan said something a little like that, too. Right. I think the ethical goal, um, Occam's razor, is just the golden rules. Do unto others as, as you'd have them do unto you. Right? So I just try and, whenever I get, like, you know, three or four options and it's unclear and it's just yeah. so just go back and say okay well if i decide what would i want how would i want them to act towards me and that usually clarifies it and uh, you know it's interesting I was, I was i was uh in the car just i don't know driving back from lunch and i was, and i heard i caught a little 
piece of this NPR show. And um, they were talking about, it was some person, I think it was an ethicist or something, and she's talking about how the, 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 when, you, when you hold a grudge, really the only person the, that's hurting is you. Yeah, totally. Right? And so if someone screws you over in business or whatever, I mean, you know, you don't always want to roll over and say, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to let them take advantage of me. If you can do something about it and you say, okay, we're, I'm going to, you know, fight this or I'm going to, I'm going to contest this. But if at some point, once it's over, right, and it's resolved, holding a grudge for any length of time is really only hurting you because they're probably moved on. Right, they're not thinking about it, and you're just you're just putting yourself in a mental state where you're 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 acting, you're you're definitely not in an optimal uh, creative state. I, and, I I strongly agree. I, I I extend that to say, forgiving someone is actually for my benefit. When I forgive someone, it is important for me. Whether or not they apologize is actually more for their benefit than for mine. And I, I think a lot of times we get lost in a sense of fairness that there has to be this handshaking protocol of first you apologize, then I forgive you. And, you know, actually they're, they're, they might be surprisingly independent. That's really, that's a very interesting point. I think it is. I think that especially for people who are creators or makers, right? I mean, for you to create anything interesting or, or new and have any impact on the world, it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of sort of, a, and you're going to have to keep yourself in a positive uh, mental state, otherwise you're not going to get anything done. So you, if you, keeping that in mind, you understand that the longer you hold on to a grudge and the longer you keep yourself in this negative state of mind, the less, less productive you're going to be. And you're hurting yourself because the biggest asset you have is your ability to create. Yeah, now, uh, beyond, um, did you like the way I used handshaking protocol to keep this somewhat ten- technical? Sure. I like it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, we don't only focus on tech. I mean, we do go all over the place. We've even been known to talk about UFOs. Yeah, let's get some UFO stuff. <laughs> peak, peak oil. <laughs> Very nice. Um, well, taking that into a similar direction, I, uh, then with, with that in mind, I do think business concepts and personal concepts are highly more related than people realize. I would even say, you know, part of what I am learning is my failure from my own measurement, my failures in business, I'm discovering are, are directly related to personal failings, to problems in my own character. And it's fascinating and interesting to move past those. So one that specifically applies, is related to what you're saying and, and comes out of the lean startup world, is the idea of experimenting, finding out if something works or not without emotional attachment, and then moving on in a certain kind of way. This is a segue from the idea of forgiveness and grudge and letting go of that. It's very much a business concept to, okay, I'm going to try this idea, and it works or it doesn't. Don't get so attached to it, but whatever you do, you know, move on. There's another lesson you have to learn tomorrow. And I have, you know, I'm kind of an emotional person in, in some ways. Things affect me personally that other times people say, dude, this is just business. And that makes it more, has made it more difficult for me to learn some of the business lessons that I've had to learn in the past. I'm realizing, wow, you know, I got to get a thicker skin just to realize, yep, that experiment failed. Time to move on to the next one. Boom, done. It's funny. Uh, speaking to, to Rob Walling, we just, we just did a panel show with um, Rob and Pete Michaud, and hmm. it's not actually aired yet. But we were speaking about that, and we, one of the take-homes that he got from the, the Business of Software um, conference was that 
It is a huge part about building your own character. I mean, it's, you kind of get to the point where you, you do the metrics, you do this, you do that. But if you look at someone like Peldy, yeah, right, it, like, it, it, <laughs> he's become he's now moving to to this new place because of essentially his character. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And and that's kind of where we have to learn as business people to put ourselves out there to not be afraid to be a kind of uh, a masthead kind of character. To be able to speak eloquently, unlike I've just been <laughs> for the last few minutes, and you know, to have humour in your speaking, and essentially to become a, a personality and not be afraid to be out there in the public and be a public face. And what is really terrifying is that I can't be Peldy either. I have to be myself, and you have to be yourself. And Peldy happens to be a good, good example of someone being himself and being successful at it. But it is kind of terrifying to realize that you know, we're going to see who you are anyway. We all have an image of who Bill Gates is that he couldn't escape, who Steve Jobs is that he couldn't escape, it, you know, Zuckerberg, etc. You can have a PR machine, you can shape that to a degree, but it comes through. You're you. You're you, right? Uh, yeah. I'm, as I said, I'm a little terrified to be learning what that is. I don't know. Well, when I say you're you, I mean it. Like I'm just talking in the oh, you meant more abstract. <laughs> yeah, like abstract. Like we we are we are us. Like we can't help but be ourselves. Absolutely. So our you know our our stumbling and ineloquence is going to be captured on tape one day. You know, someone's going to see if we're Correct. if we're if we do that or whatever. Correct. Well, you can't. It's it's really hard to fake it in a podcast. That's for sure. And there's no point in even trying because it's not going to be any fun, and it's not. It's going to be hard to listen to, I think. And I, I think one of the reasons, one the type of podcasts that seem to do really well is when people are their most natural, right? They don't. It's not this very scripted, stilted, um, slick production. And um, and and I think the reason people respond to that is because it just feels real, like they're like they're sitting next to some people having an interesting conversation. It's interesting that you say that because um, not that. Uh, Patrick, not that your uh, podcast is is stilted or anything like that, but ge- I, I know that generally speaking, your podcast it isn't the kind of natural conversation style. It's more of a traditional interview style. Mm-hmm. But then number eighty five uh, came <laughs> out, which is kind of different. Maybe you could talk us through a little bit about why you do the podcast the way you do and why you release number eighty five uh, that way. Wow, that's fascinating. Because as you're saying that, I was thinking, you know, I am pretty stilted. I I definitely have felt stilted, and part of that is because I didn't even know why I was podcasting. It just was something I was compelled to do. I, I reached out to Bob Walsh a couple of years ago. Um, he had a show called The Micro ISV Show with uh, Michael Lehman, a Microsoft guy. And Michael Lehman had moved on to another role, and the, the, the show had stagnated. I said, hey, let's pick this back up. I, I love Micro ISVs. I want to be a part of this. It's just something I want to do. Interestingly, I, I never had any idea of what success would mean. I still don't. I'm, uh, although I, I'm, I'm working on it. And I had never done a podcast before. I can get up in front of people. I can talk pretty much ad nauseum. Uh, just be, I'm capable of running words together endlessly, a skill that comes in handy once in a while. But it turns out that's not particularly useful on a podcast. And again, getting the initial feedback from listeners, oh my gosh, it was torturous finding out that someone would listen and actually have an opinion about what I said and the way I said it. So I think I, I became more and more closed in a certain way. However, I also, I guess I, you know, over a couple of years, I started listening and, and, and paying attention. And Bob has an experience in journalism, so we naturally followed his style, which is going to be quite journalistic. Um, so a couple things. One, I have a lot of work to do that I, I knew before, and I, I'm just finally doing it, which 
I have to go out and see what else is out there. So I, I, I don't listen to other podcasts. I, I kind of have a really rather hard day-to-day busy job, and it, I, I don't have a lot of time for that. If I listened to more podcasts, I would have a better podcast. That's number one. But the, the path to 85 came through business of software, and it was finally getting a sense of mission. Finally, I, it, you know, as I said, I had never considered what success would mean. It, this was just something I was doing, and I couldn't help, you know, I kind of couldn't bring myself not to do it. It's not part of my day-to-day commitments this year or anything. It's not, it's not technically part of my job, although I do represent myself as an employee of Microsoft, so I have to think about it in that context. Um, but at the Business of Software conference, actually talking with Peldy, he politely referred to a group of people, hey, it's like on Patrick and Bob's podcast. And I said, whoa, 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 you actually listen to me? <laughs> that was <laughs> inconceivable to me. And, right. and, and so had a couple of the other people standing there. And that changed everything. I mean, just boom. It was, it, my life has been different since in the, in the way that now I have a mission. Now I can't, I, there are people who bother to spend time listening to me and now I know them personally. They're not just an abstraction to me. I know some of them personally. And I am compelled to try to give them something useful. So instead of just talking into the ether, I'm going to try to do something useful for them. You spoke about, in number 85, you yeah. spoke about your passion for stories. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk us through that. Hey, um, Justin, I, I just wanted to say one thing real quick. Yeah. It, it, you yeah. know, about the meeting people uh, in real life. You know, we met Rob Walling personally for the first time, uh, or in person, I should say, uh, last week. And I started, uh, you know, telling him something uh, about, I don't know, podcast or my project or something. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Right. I've been listening to podcasts. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> really? And it's sort of shocking, uh, the, the reality of it, the, of people listening to you. And, and they know. All stuff that's well, and the donations as well. We 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 asked basically. I not. I mean, our sound quality is pretty good, but I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I kind of want a better mic than I've got. Ah, nice. So I said, I said, well, let's have a little donation drive. So we've kind of put put up this donation drive on Indiegogo, and uh, within ten days, we've got like two hundred and fifty five bucks donated. That's really cool. Yeah, it's very validating. It makes you feel kind of like yeah, it was, hey. it's shocking, is what it was to me. I mean, we had, um, uh, Ben Boiter donated a hundred, Felix donated fifty dollars. I was just like, what? It's amazing. I just that people That's would awesome. like it enough to donate that kind of uh, money was just um, yeah. I have to say, it is very validating, and is the same kind of feeling I think you had, Patrick, when Peldy said that he listened to your podcast. Is when yeah. our listeners actually stepped up to the plate and said, hey, you know what? I'll help you buy a new mic. I'll help you buy some new audio equipment. Keep it up. So, that was. So anyway, we, we rudely interrupted Patrick. You, you were just going to talk us through stories because I thought that part of, of 85 was just really interesting and I'd love to hear you talk through that. Well, well thanks. Even as a little more context, I come from a – I don't consider myself a very good storyteller. <laughs> My dad is one of these exceptional storytellers, Homeric, and I am not. And so it this is personal for me in that regard, listening to – at, at the conference, listening to um, Paul Kenny talking about the way he, he the way he tells a story to his son and what is it, his son demands from him in a in a bedtime story and how personal it was. It's got to have SpongeBob. It's got to have zombies, but not a, too scary a zombie. More of you know, just a it's bedtime after all. Just a friendly zombie and all, all these things. It just I, I it it almost hurt me because I have not 
used stories enough in my own life, in my opinion. And I, I, I began recognizing that the, what resonated with me at the conference were all these people's stories. And that the only thing I have that's worth anything for people is, in fact, my story. Um, you know, I, I have some how-to knowledge, but that goes stale quickly. Um, Can you give us some examples of the kind of stories that resonated with you from the conference? What did people say? Well, the, the, the one Paul talked about, working backward, um, Joel Spalsky's personal story, he, he did a, his description of getting venture capital for Stack Overflow. He just told the story. And that I was thinking how useful this is for people who are in that mode of needing to get funding. A, a story is so much less dry. It's so much easier to consume. You, you grasp the essential aspects of it more readily than when someone gives you a how-to. So, so by story, you're saying, this is, someone says, look, this is what happened to me. Yeah, this and, is my experience. And so I will relate part of the essence of Joel's story saying, you know, hey, we went to that place in Silicon Valley where all these venture capitalists are, and we walked around, and some of these guys were jerks, and some of them were cool, and we found out it was really important to have – more than one interested in you because otherwise you have no leverage and this guy tried to split us up. He told the story. It was interesting. I mean, it, it was fascinating to someone who wasn't even getting venture capital. It's something I'm going to remember five years from now if, because it's a story. It's human. It stuck with me. And it oh, conveyed see. the information of how to go about getting venture capital if this is something that applies to you. Has this made you feel that your podcast rather than being the interview style, should be the story style. I, I'm slowly trying to work it to that, and uh, we still have habits. So, you know, we, we kind of fall back on our journalism style, and um, Bob and I are talking, and we're, we're trying to get more in the habit of, instead of asking a question about a topic, saying, you know, tell us the story about that. Um, I haven't figured out all the details. M more broadly, I have a sense of mission about this because... I started something in my job a couple years ago called Microsoft Solutions Advocates, MSA, nice Microsoft acronym. And its purpose, it was an idea I had about amplifying partner stories. You know, when I write the mission, it's all about getting partner stories heard. It's more real. You know, we make this technology, but until a partner uses it and delivers solutions on it, it's kind of an abstraction. When they tell their story, it lights up. People don't want to hear your marketing speak about this, they want to hear your story of how you did that. So it was, this is something I've been working on for a couple of years and just haven't taken flight with it. Once I was at the conference, and I, as I alluded to in the show, I realized that the, the real problem was that I was, was the first word, that it's the only way to get what I want in the sense of highlighting partner stories is to somehow broaden the conversation to just talk about software stories. Um, I do not have a solution on this. This is merely an assertion that I have a burning ember inside of me. Um, I do sometimes have very strong instincts. This is an incredibly strong instinct that if I can figure out the right mechanism to get more software stories heard, to put a mic in front of someone to get them to tell their story, to highlight your podcast, Rob's podcast, my podcast, to get all these things that are already out there more readily accessible, searchable, etc. I don't know how. Although that little magic has to be worked out. But I think if that existed, number one, it would just be awesome. 
And number two, the fact is there are a lot of amazing Microsoft partner success stories out there that would naturally come to the surface and solve the problem, the business problem that I was trying to solve for Microsoft, which is, you know, we need to show the world just how real this is. There's all these amazing partners doing these amazing things with our technologies. So speaking of uh, stories, I mean, can we hear your story? I'd like to hear sort of how you got started in tech. And, uh, you know, you said you initially thought you were going to do startups and be successful. And I'd be interested to hear kind of what you did along that path. Yeah. Don't leave out any of the bad parts. Yeah, I want to hear a story. It's story time. I'm going to sit back now, grab my coffee. It's story time. <laughs> All right. Um, I never decided to go into this business. Um, I was a musician. and um, well, Same as me. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That's cool. Uh, violin for me. You were singer-songwriter, said, right? Right. Um, so the, I was at Southern Methodist University at the time, and had some frustrations in music that I won't go into and um, had just gotten married. My wife was putting me through school. She was working while I was finishing up, which made sense because I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew my direction. Once I had this point where I doubted that direction, I said, well, you know, let's step back. Why don't, why don't I work a little bit and let you finish your degree while I figure out what's going on? And I took a temp job because I knew how to type 70 words a minute. And I just thought everybody knew how to use computers. You know, this was like 1990, 91. And, um, you know, I had never programmed before, but it's, I, I couldn't believe that people didn't know how to, you know, attach network drives, et cetera, or just do basic computery stuff. And, um, you know, just as a temp, like literally my, you know, after one week, I found myself at a hotel company. Um, I'll be specific. It happened to be Wyndham Hotel Company, and I was typing up their standard operating procedures. I was a typist. I was a temp. But if, if you think about a hotel company, where is their middle management? They're all outside. They're in hotels, right? They're GMs of hotels. The only people in the actual corporate offices are, are senior executives. So I'm like 21 years old, don't even have a, a degree. And, um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've got chutzpah and I'm walking around clarifying, you know, uh, rules about sales and marketing in, a, in the hotel chain, you know, asking questions of all these executives who are the only people there who could answer this. I was there for like 16 months and was a mascot for them, essentially. I was this guy who, well, what do you know? You know, he can kind of just do anything we ask him to do. During that time, I learned how to program computers. Um, I have an uncle who, who did start a successful software company that he sold for $3 million, you know, at some point 20 years ago. And um, so, I, you know, once I started getting into this, he said, yeah, you got to learn C. Make sure you learn C. So, I, you know, I learned C. And literally within 18 months, I marched into them and said, you know, you don't have a, like a, a, a VP of information technology. You should make me your VP of information technology. <laughs> they did the, the fiduciary responsible thing in saying, no. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I, I need some credibility here. And... Um, Leveraging my, so you're what twenty? You're like twenty three at this stage, twenty two, twenty three, and yeah. um, yeah, and I realize, you know, I, I don't have any proof that I know what I'm doing here, so I, um, I also taught myself C plus plus and was doing some interesting things, and I, on my resume, I put some interesting code and sent it around, and immediately, you know, I got offers because I showed I know how to do stuff. Went to work at American Airlines, um, which was very 
beneficial. It was, it was a lucky break because I learned software engineering in a way that I might not have even learned at, if I had gone to software school. You know, um, I was with these brilliant guys who used PVCS, and I learned about version control and all these things. And I solved problems. You know, I I did bold things. My first week on the job, I probably had more of an impact than um, than I have in a lot of different situations when I, I threw away code. I said, why are we, I was responsible for this installer. And I said, why are we still coding this? Why don't we just buy an installer? And I, no one agreed with me because of course, if it's not invented here, it must be crap. And uh, I, I, my boss said, well, if you really think so, do it. And I, you know, spent a couple hundred bucks on install it and, you know, made it a lot better. Continuing that trend, you know, I, again, I thought I was a hot shot because I taught myself how to do this, leveraged it into a good job. And uh, a couple years later, one of my buddies um, jumped ship to make twice as much money consulting. And I said, that sounds like a good deal to me. And uh, so maybe, what, 24, 25, I started my career as a consultant. And um, that was what I did. And I, I, you know, I did that for like 14 years and just made a career of going in and knowing that I could figure out whatever needed to be done. Um, a big part of my story was this guy named Desmond D'Souza. I, I was very fortunate while I was at American Airlines, I was on this project where I had to test out our SDK in all these different environments, you know, put it to its paces. So I learned, you know, VB, I think it was four at the time. I, I tested it in VB4. I tested it in Smalltalk. I tested it in, uh, Borland Paradox and all these different things. And I had all these wild and diverse experiences. I, I was the only guy on our team who knew C++. So they sent me to the object-oriented training and I learned all these different techniques. And through that, met this guy named Desmond D'Souza who became a mentor of mine and really developed my technical love, the thing that I am actually pretty good at, which is modeling. Um, I learned how to model business problems before you write the software, describing, you know, this is how you do it. Well, um, I'll, I'll cut to the end of the story. It feels like, I don't know, it's feeling kind of boring to me. because I No, guess... no, it's not. It's interesting. Okay. It is. It's interesting. Uh, um, as a consultant, the, the career Well, wait was... a minute. There's no car chases, though. That's the problem. <laughs> I did go to San Francisco, though. So I think that you can at least imagine the streets and, you know... <laughs> it, was it anyone is... chasing you or at least imaginary... Yeah. De- oh, there's of plenty of imaginary voices and things like that. Okay. But um, that's a different, different show. Um, okay. I... You know, I it, specifically I lived in San Francisco um, in the during the dot com boom. So you know, I was making a ton of money and felt like I was broke because it was just so expensive to live there. And um, what, what I started saying that you know, one lesson I learned in retrospect is I I was cocky in the sense that I could bounce around from technology to technology, knowing that I could learn anything, and that prevented me from having the kind of focus that gives you a, a, a genuine reputation. Um, I could read right. anybody's book and, and be the expert on it in the context of any given company almost instantly, but I couldn't write the book. And, so jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. And I, in, in retrospect, um, that wasn't a great career move for what I was intending to do. Um, you know, I thought I would, the problem I intended to solve, I was a consultant, more of a, like a corporate developer enterprise consultant. Um, and, uh, you know, from big banks to occasional small startups even, you know. Um, uh, and I was working for a 
Bank in New York on 9-11, as a matter of fact. It's a whole separate story that I'll leave that cliffhanger for another day. But um, I, I never I, – I, I, I had this vision that the top five consulting companies of the world who um, had issues in my mind. You know, when I had I, I'd participated in multiple contracts where there was a big consulting on board – a big consulting company who just cost a lot of money and didn't bring a lot of success. And this angered me. And I thought I was going to be the guy to do something about it. Um, I thought specifically that it wouldn't be one company that really had this effect, but that it would be an army of small consulting companies that would bring software quality to this industry. And, um, but I didn't really do the work to, to make that happen. And interestingly, I, in, you know, it's strange. I guess you attract things you you desire. Some friends of mine in my hometown of Grand Rapids did. Uh, this company called Atomic Object in Grand Rapids, I think, is one of those kinds of companies that is showing how there is a right way to do it. Um, so one of the last, in fact, the last thing I did before coming to work for Microsoft was work for this incredible agile software uh, consulting company called Atomic Object that has you know about 25, 30 people and just they're just really good. I loved it. I fit in. And, um, but at the same time, you know, like Microsoft had found my resume on the web or something three years before I started. And I said, no, 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 I'm a consultant. This is what I do. For, it was for a position similar to what I'm doing today. And I said, no, 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 I'm happy here. And then, you know, three years later when they contacted me, I took stock. I realized I have not really accomplished any of the things that I set out to do. I'm starting to get old. You know, I'm in my mid-30s at this point. Um, I've, in fact, every risk-based decision I've made, um, like starting a new consulting company with that uncle that I admired so much, um, I failed. You know, didn't work out. Didn't work out. And, and I, I'm going to be specific and personal on this show. I was in debt. You know, I, mm. my career had gone in the opposite direction of, you know, it wasn't just lack of, of success. It was failure and it was affecting my life, my family. My, you know, I had a kid at this point. I was going in the wrong direction. So when Microsoft uh, approached me again, I'm like, I, you know, I can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. I've got to leverage. So that's, the de- that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing Absolutely. the same action, right? Defin- doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Yeah. So I took a different turn. Okay, so so you you're working for Microsoft now, and mm. you've you've so you've essentially gone through a very independent career. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. certainly you've had twelve years of of independence. You were working for corporates before that. Mm-hmm. Now you're working for Microsoft. I mean, do you kind of have like a secret hankering to be a Peldy or, or or a Jason Cohen? When I met Patrick for the first time, and for some I, for some he didn't look anything how I expected. I thought he was going to be this middle-aged white guy with, a, you know, a professorial air, and he was, he was so young-looking to me. I'm, you're talking about Patrick like, McKenzie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, he just, right. He was, he was not at all what I expected. But anyway, the um, delightful man. And when I met him, I, I, I said something off. The, it just, just rolled off my tongue, and then I stepped back and realized there was a lot of truth in it. I said, you know, I work for the biggest software company in the world, and I dream of working for the smallest. Because I was emphasizing how I respect what he's done. And, you know, I, number one, there's a lot of truth to that. I, I really, really admire the Patrick McKenzie's, the, the Peldies, the Rob Wallings of the world who have done it. And 
I would like to do it. The, the twist, because I never do things the easy way, is I actually really do want to do it somehow in the context of still working for Microsoft. So <laughs> I, it, it is, I don't want to give up my job. I want to somehow do it in a visible Microsoft-sanctioned way that shows other people how they can do it and how beneficial it is to do it on Microsoft platform. So I sort of thought Microsoft had a little bit of um, a thing where they try and cultivate entrepreneurial spirit. Like within BizSpark the, or something? Yeah. Is that it? Um, BizSpark is a wonderful program, but that's for people outside of Microsoft. It's, it, okay. BizSpark is a great program. Essentially, it takes away the friction of having to buy software. The, you know, the reason why open source, say the LAMP stack, became so popular, I was reading some of Eric Reese's earlier writings recently, and he's talking about LAMP because he didn't want to spend any money. Well, BizSpark means that when you're starting out, you don't have to spend any money on Microsoft stuff. You do after three years, but you got this kind of three-year grace period, if you will. But isn't that a little bit like the crack cocaine model? Oh, it's, it's, like... it's explicitly the crack cocaine model, but, <laughs> it, but it's very, very beneficial crack. That's a, a, a difference. That, um, it, And I can say this I mean, seriously. It, it is harder to make a, an architecture that can run a Twitter or that can run a Facebook once you, you know, once you really, once you actually succeed, Microsoft's platform is actually a lot easier to manage than, than LAMP, in my opinion. I mean, I've used both. I, uh, uh, I have a house guest at the moment who it cracks me up. His, uh, uh, one of the startups that I worked on that was not the raving success that we all hoped it would be, uh, yoga-software.com, in case you're curious. Well, I wrote all the, all the ordering and management software and that I just saw a second ago. It's all, it's Perl. You know, I love Perl. There's nothing wrong with that. But once it actually gets, if I were starting today, I would use Azure. It's a no-brainer. Um, it, it's so, and I, I don't want to get into sales mode, but I, let me put it this way. I believe in what I'm selling. That's why I do, in fact, want to get in context. But the point I was making a second ago, this is external. This exists. It's great, but it's not for me as an employee. It's for our customers, which makes a lot of sense. We should be focused on our customers. So there, there's nothing like that for internal people? There is in a way, and the, the funny thing is, it was essentially, I mean, obviously, motivated by the dynamics of competition. That we, we did something really cool in the phone space. Windows Phone 7 is coming out. It is not a Me Too product. It's, um, it's, it's a great example that if you focus on your competition in a, by doing the same thing they do, Maybe you can overtake a mediocre competitor. There's no way you can take over a, a good competitor. And come on, phone is just, phone is so entertaining to watch. The, the, I mean, the, the fifth place competitor is interesting in phone and, and, and worthy, right? So right. you're not going to succeed in phone without have, uh, with a Me Too product. Windows Phone 7 is innovative. Um, it's its own thing. I, you know, we won't know until after this airs if the market rewards us, but it, at a minimum, I'm very proud of the input that we put into it. It's a, it's a really worthy effort. Part of that is that Microsoft realized we need as many Windows Phone 7 developers out there as possible. And this mobile in general, as an entire space, is, a, is the current goldmine for micropreneurs. Okay? And so the, you know, the kind of developers we need for Windows Phone 7 aren't necessarily the $100 million companies I work with in my, uh, in my role they're individuals creating fart apps, you know? And um, <laughs> so they, it, I don't know who came down with this, but uh, some executive had the bold and, in my opinion, opinion, brilliant idea, not just to sanction it, but to encourage all of the developers in the company, 
go to Windows Phone 7 apps, follow this procedure, and you can keep the money. The point is not to make you rich or make you leave the company. That would be bad. The point is to let you enjoy this process, get your skills up, and help us, you know, have a successful Windows Phone 7 marketplace. So that just thrilled me. That's what I want to do. Um, unfortunately, I can't even fit that into my schedule yet. I'm a little nervous that by the time I can, the opportunity is no, will no longer be essential for Microsoft and I won't have that opportunity. But I think my, the, my goal for this, I, I think it sets a precedent that will show that I can do, I want to do the same thing but more broadly. I don't want to limit myself to just phone. I want to solve some tiny micropreneur-worthy business problems on the Microsoft platform following the techniques of Rob Walling and his Start, Stop, Start Small, Stay Small book and uh, you know, Patrick, etc. Do you, one of the big technologies that you, you're an evangelist for is Azure, right? Is, is mm-hmm. that correct? Mm-hmm. Get, why, why don't you, let's get tech for a minute here. And yeah. Why don't you yeah. tell us a little bit about how Azure compares to um, Amazon's EC2 and um, sure. Google's what, App, App Engine, things yep. like that. Yeah. Um, first of all, let me start. When Ray Ozzy announced Azure, I was very happy that he tipped his hat to Amazon. Um, I thought that was cool. I always think it's nice to acknowledge worthy competitors who kind of initiated a market, and Amazon clearly did that. Um, I also say, you know, if mobile is the knife fight of our industry, uh, cloud is the battleship battle, you know, Um, much different scope and speed. The difference is, to use buzzwords for a second, Amazon is very much an infrastructure as a service play. Um, I was thinking for a second about Google as we said this. I think Google would also more properly fit into a platform as a service play. So um, specifically with Azure, you know, you write code, typically, you know, for the the UI part, it's ASP.NET code, and it is managed by the platform. You essentially turn a dial to scale it. You don't have to manage any of the operating system details of keeping the, the, the infrastructure patched. That's the responsibility of the Azure platform. Um, you know, you're, you kind of see the operating system, but not really. It's, it's, it's abstracted in such a way that just multiple um, web front, front ends are just easily fired up, and it, it's architected in a way that's inherently stateless, etc. One thing that I sometimes say is, if you're experienced with highly scalable applications, you can accomplish that on an infrastructure-as-a-service platform. And in fact, you can do that on EC2 with Windows. If you're familiar with the Windows server, you, you know, it, it, that exists. You have to know how to do it a little bit better. You can mess it up a little bit easier, in my opinion, if you haven't done it before. The constraints of a platform as a service play actually kind of nudge you into the direction of being automatically scalable a bit more. So um, last week we interviewed on our podcast uh, Matt Spradley, a guy who started an Azure-focused business called Empiris to make websites, uh, legal websites. And, I mean, Bob was trying to challenge him to find the negatives. It's like, no, dude, I will, I will never go back. It is, And I think I would say more broadly he was partly saying I will never go back to an infrastructure as a service play when there is a platform as a service play available. Because it's, right. it's another level of abstraction higher. You write code, you upload the code, the code runs. Your operations management is very, very minimal. minimal. 
Well, what? Okay, so some of the issues that people deal with are some of the pieces. There's the there's like memcache that people tend to mm-hmm. use, and there's things like NoSQL or at least sure. you know sharding and all that kind of stuff that they have yep. that people have to do to solve the database uh, problems. I mean, does Azure take care of that kind of stuff? Oh, a wonderful question! And now I can tell a story. Okay, it's totally that was such a boring answer. If you're still awake, look at how much more interesting it is when I tell a story. So <laughs> I I remember. Um, like three years ago, I was at this internal Microsoft event where they were talking about this cool new cloud thing that was coming out and part of it. Uh, I believe it was called SDS, SQL Data Services at the time. And it was, you know, here's why it's, it's no SQL. It, it, it's what became Windows Azure Table Storage, okay? So it's, um, it's essentially a no SQL kind of thing. It's, and here's why it's so important. It scales so much more easily. You know, relational is harder for these reasons. When you're building something at gargantuan internet scale, you have to do things this way. This is why it's so much better. And I was, you know, everyone was, had stars in their eyes. They're like, this is so cool. I can't wait till this gets out there. So then it goes into, you know, the top secret super double probation beta period. And everybody uses it says, this is awesome. This is so cool. This is amazing. And we get feedback and that's really cool. And finally we release it. I think it's like PDC 08 or something, releasing it into the wild in this public CTP. And there was no negative feedback on it at all. Everyone's like, wow, that's really cool. That's such a neat thing. By the way, where's SQL Server? So, okay, yeah, but, you know, this is really cool. Yeah, 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 that's really neat. It, it's, it's really cool, but where's SQL Server? What I really want is SQL Server. And, right. you know, you could kind of collectively see Microsoft blinking and saying, what? Well, huh? And, you know, this is, it, it, this, I use this story as an example of why it doesn't matter whether you're Patrick McKenzie or Microsoft, release early, release often, and find out what your customers want. There wasn't even negative feedback on what we were releasing, it reached a point where the market finally could speak and say, yeah, that's cool. It's just not what I want. <laughs> what I yeah. want is SQL Server. Right. So right. Microsoft kind of, you know, they essentially, we, we had to essentially scramble and put together um, SQL Server. It had uh, SQL Azure. It had certain limitations that people kind of complained about, but that if you, you know, watch the trending, those limitations are um, naturally being stripped away over time because, you know, it takes work to write software that, that works this way. Um, and, and it's, it's more expensive than a NoSQL approach. You know, it, it requires more resources to run a true relational database in the cloud. And um, uh, there are more features coming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't know when you're going to air this, but uh, Microsoft's Professional Developer Conference is at the end of October, and we're going to be announcing all kinds of interesting things in this space. But anyway, my, my point is that's what the market wanted. And what's interesting is, well, what's the equivalent from Amazon or Google? It, they, Amazon and Google didn't own a SQL server to begin with. We did. And so when we entered the space, the market said, well, what we want from you is this in the cloud. <laughs> That's what we had to do. You do, you do have an equivalent um, on Rackspace, Rackspace sites where they will, uh, they will basically deal with MySQL in that way for you. Uh, and Rackspace is also a viable alternative for Microsoft products as well. And you can run SQL server on Amazon. It's not the same thing as having a... It's, it's still not what the market wanted from Microsoft. And, and actually, the point I was making is it's a very competitive space, and yet what the market asked for from us, interestingly, on one hand, had nothing to do with competition, and yet it is a competitive advantage for Microsoft that there's really no other thing quite like SQL Azure. I don't know whether you, um, whether you intended to, but you've slightly sidestepped the question, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> which well, is which, the, the, the question that Jason was asking was... Um, do you like basically 
can you just shove up your code onto the Azure and you don't need to worry about memcache sharding and all that uh, kind of stuff? Uh, uh. So um, with with SQL Azure, or excuse me, with Windows Azure if, in the web role, yes, in general, you can put your code up there. And, you know, if you have enough instances um, fired up, it's going to be pretty automagical, okay? If you use Windows Azure Table Storage as your uh, backend, yeah, it's it's just... It's essentially infinite. You, you don't have to worry about it. In reality, what people want is SQL Azure, and it, people end up using SQL Azure in ways that they wind up having to shard it because it's just – and I, I was talking with the Microsoft MVP about this this past weekend that about a specific problem. He wanted certain things from SQL Azure that are available in Windows Azure Table Storage. And I said, well, you know, why don't you do Windows Azure Table Storage? And he said, well, I'm just comfortable with SQL. I don't want to have to change. Okay. It's a compelling argument. So the, the market is pushing us in a direction that has more to do with another product of ours than with competition from another vendor was the point I was trying to make. I mean, yeah, you, I, you can go tick by tick and compare things that Amazon has that we have. And the, it's, it's a pretty and Google for that matter. And the table is, you know, pretty complete for everybody. But that's, it, it turns out that's not really. So Jason, I think the answer is it will, it will scale infinitely as long as you use the new Azure product rather than the traditional SQL Server product. Right. Well, and that's, that makes sense. You use the product in the way it's supposed to be used. Yeah. Right. Uh, and again, SQL Azure is, is just a different thing. It has different capabilities that then NoSQL type products, such as Windows Azure Table Storage, don't have. And it's, you know, a, a true relational database. Um, you know, it, there are more capabilities coming out every day. I can't remember what's NDA and what isn't, but obviously, directionally, it is becoming more and more complete. People, what our customers are telling us they want from their overall cloud experience is has more to do with bringing together bringing the cloud experience closer to the on-premise experience and being able to even migrate between them dynamically, that is what the market is telling us they care about. That is, there is a whole different competitive market out there of kind of starting from scratch and building scalable applications using the best you got. It's just, that's a completely different architectural style. That's not where the money is for us. You know, there, that's, when I talk to developers and ISVs, it's just not really what they care about. They care more What's, about mimicking an on-premise style effectively. Yeah, well, I guess people, when they're used to using a tool in a certain way, it's yep. just hard to, it's yep. hard to re change the way their brain works. Yep. Now, okay, what's the, I don't know if you have these numbers off the top of your head, but what's sort of the pricing structure for getting started with Azure? Um, I, I do, let me put it this way. Today is October 26. When is this going to air? Uh, we're probably going to put it out on the weekend. Uh, probably be going out on Saturday. Um, uh, okay, this, this then third, I, the twenty ninth or whatever, right? It, it's literally going to change. Uh, um, I I have to wait until Microsoft PDC is over. If I just say something, it's going to confuse people because literally, um, you know, by the time this airs, there are going to be adjustments to that. So I and I, I so ones that I don't know what they specifically are. I know they're in the direction that's going to make people happy. So. Um, cool. Let, uh, we can do a follow-up, or I'll, I'll do a blog post clarifying this or something, but I'd, I'd rather just wait until... Sure, sure, sure. Fair enough, fair enough. So, Jason, I was just going to say, it's it's interesting, um, because, you know, we're, Patrick, we are um, 80 
I guess this is 82 episodes in. Mm-hmm. And you're, I think you're the, the second person that we've spoken to from a, from a corporate organization. We also spoke to Corinne Yu from, from Microsoft Games Development. Oh, cool. Xbox. And um, it's, it's strange speaking to, to someone who essentially is bound by the constraints of corporate in that way. Well, re- recognize I literally don't know the answer. Um, I'm an evangelist, which means it's my responsibility to go out and tell the world about our latest and greatest stuff. The big companies that I work with, they tend to care about NDA things. It always terrifies me that I'm going to mix up. So I normally, my day-to-day work is an NDA world. You know, I I have private information. I don't know what is and what isn't NDA. So I'm very, very cautious about what I say in a public situation because I can't remember. Um, That said... To put it uh, in a somewhat humorous light, Microsoft knows that we have enough people that for the really important things, it's really hard to, to have everybody be perfect about keeping it secret. So a lot of the details, I mean, I literally just don't know what the pricing is going to be on Saturday. Yeah. I know it's, I, I it's going to be better than it is today because, <laughs> because we have a big event in two days. So, so Justin, I, I'd like to switch directions real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, do. I'd like to ask, I was looking at your, um, at your um, podcast blog, and in the notes of, I think, the most recent show, you said you're moving your site to WP Engine, which is Jason Cohen's new yeah. startup, right? Which is, uh, from what I understand, WP Engine promises very extremely scalable, fast, secure WordPress hosting. And I was curious what um, and, and he just got the thing started up, right? I mean, he's yeah, like, yeah. just he's been blogging about it, and just yep. you know, I think they got like the first fifty customers or something. And I'm curious, what what uh, why are you guys moving over to it, and what's what do you what advantages do you see of of, the, of his new service? Um, a couple things. One, Bob has been more responsible for the actual blog part of it, which has been hosted on WordPress, and. Um, Frankly, I don't pay that much attention, but Bob has perceived a certain amount of downtime from WordPress and mm. a, cer- a certain lack of flexibility to add, you know, to make it exactly how he wants. And so, it, you know, he just, he really wanted to go in this direction. It, it, for what it's worth, I wanted to go in the direction originally of hosting it on Azure, number one, to say that we were. Um, you can run WordPress on Azure. I know, know the cheeseburger cheeseburger network did that um so i know it's possible and then i finally realized i don't want to operate a wordpress site on the back end i don't want to have to learn that you know it just, <laughs> right, it, just right. it just sounded like something that was going to blow up on me and so i i said you know what fine do it do it the way that seems best to you i'm sure this is going to be great i trust jason I'm, you know i'm, I'm sure it's going to be great now we store the files elsewhere and just from pure laziness you know they were on um, the actual media files are on S3 because it was around before Azure Blob Storage existed, and it is on my copious to-do list to move those from Amazon S3 to Windows Blob Storage simply because uh, Windows Azure Blob Storage simply because I work for Microsoft. Frankly, no other. Do you get like a, an awesome disc, employee discount? Um, that actually, that one I probably won't won't even be an employee discount. I, I was going to put that at internal rates you know essentially um as i said oh, I right because you and bob both work for microsoft right no bob does not and oh sure okay he- so right so in it so this is sort of a pseudo microsoft podcast i mean in a sense you represent microsoft but it's not really microsoft's it's yeah i mean i it's not a microsoft podcast i mean bob's an apple fanboy and a ruby on rails nut um ah. uh so yeah i mean he definitely uh you know he 
some people uh, have written asking, you know, if I get my feelings hurt by how much he uh, slams Microsoft uh, to me, but, you know, the answer is no. Um, So it's not a Microsoft podcast in the sense that, frankly, no one, you know, no one higher up than myself said, we need someone to go out there and do this podcast. It's a Microsoft podcast in the sense that I'm an employee and I finally had the, the good sense to ask my boss this year, hey, um, do you mind if I, instead of paying for this myself, if Microsoft pays for this, since I, you know, I'm doing this as a Microsoft employee, I'm not you know, doing this to promote my band. Uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, no problem. That's cool. What do you guys do to uh, promote your podcast? Um, we don't do very much. I don't know on, the, on what are we doing to grow the audience. I, I, so let me answer the first part of that first. Um, you know, I, th- I think we have maybe somewhere between a thousand and 2000 listeners, a show approximately that, that seems a little high to me that we calculated that once, but that may have been really optimistic. Um, so I, it's a little confusing to me how you're supposed to calculate it. You know, I've looked at the WordPress thing and you see the stats for the page and then you got to add the, um, feed burner people and y- um, oh, I think that most recently the, Bob calculated the bandwidth usage from the downloads and extrapolated from that and estimated it. You know, it was over a thousand. But um, I don't know what it, what do you guys have? We have really had to fight and scrap. We're, okay. we're kind of winning over listeners like ten at a time. Okay. Um, but I think we, we've just started to hit around about eight hundred a show. Cool. Eight eight, eight fifty. But uh, we go through um, a network called Libsyn. Okay. L i b s y n dot okay. com. Okay. And essentially, they, they give you very kind of detailed stats of every single download. So the only thing we count is the actual downloads of the, you know, when people actually listen to the show. I'm, I, uh, I will follow up with you and investigate that because I'd like to know. Microsoft really likes to measure things. So if I ever did make this a more explicit responsibility of my role, I would have to measure it. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. Um, what, uh, yeah, so that's good. So, so in terms of in terms of the actual marketing of it, um, what what do you do? You just you just put it out. <laughs> yeah, I, again, uh, yeah, it's not very intentional, is it? Um, and, and, and what's funny, and it, I guess on, on the one hand, I want to, and as you're saying this, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, we really got to do some of that stuff. You know, the all, all that kind of learning about uh, promote promotion, etc. That uh, uh, learned at business of software, I can apply that to my podcast and. On the other hand, I also can't help but think, and this is, it's a dangerous way to think that, oh, but I got to make it better first, you know? Um, so, yeah, you know, I haven't really done enough to consider release that. Release early, release often, yeah. and just, just start promoting. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Jason, what was that po- uh, that post, something about... Uh, don't worry, be, start- don't worry, be crappy. No, it was, <laughs> it was start marketing as soon as you start coding or something like that. Uh, I'm sorry, say, oh, oh, that was Rob Walling's... The title of a blog post you wrote recently, which is "You Should Start Marketing the Day You Start Coding." Yeah, yeah. So, and and you know, clearly, you have a pretty crap product if you've only just started coding it. <laughs> <right>? So, <laughs> so I think, yeah. I mean, God, that's that's certainly what we've been thinking. We've been thinking, look, let's just try and mention it in the few, the very few places that we can as we go along. Although, <laughs> to be honest, we're pretty crap at marketing it. Too. Yeah, I mean, we're just now trying to, it wasn't too long ago we started asking our listeners if they wouldn't mind tweeting about us or writing a post okay. about us if they like the show or, or giving us a rating in iTunes because all those things help a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some clever ways to um, bring some attention and, and bring in some new listeners. I mean, we haven't really done too much in that area and we're still trying to figure out what we can do. Yeah. Have you done transcripts yet? 
Do you have transcripts of your show? The problem is our shows, I mean, our shows are too long. Oh, because too transcripts expensive. are kind of, you know, to outsource them. Yeah. I think it would cost us about 60 bucks a show, 60 to 80 bucks a show. Maybe uh, start, you know, I, just to, there, this is why I'm saying that. The first thing I thought is ask your listeners if they'll, excuse me, if they'll pay for it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking as, for the moment, in the same room, considering us as collaborators trying to solve the same problem that, hey, we're getting software stories told. How can we do this more effectively and, um, it, you know, reach more people when they want to be reached and, and help them find information that they need when they need it? And it seems to me we need to be more searchable. You know, this, yeah. the simplest thing, if, if all of our shows were, had transcripts and they're just going to show up on the, on the major search engines. Um, but I'm also thinking in terms of how... Is there a way, this, getting back to that stories idea I had, this is what I'm trying to figure out. Think delicious, think uh, dig. You know, maybe those things specifically, don't invent something new of it. It doesn't have to be invented. But how can we as a community whose audience is inherently geeky, right? You know, so are, who are willing to, we're not trying to reach our parents. We're trying to reach people like us who do things that you can't expect normal do, users to do. How can we tag our shows better and have them have the crowd vote on quality, etc., to raise the you know to make sure that stories that should be heard get heard? Because maybe your interview, you know, maybe that the the disruptive na- disrupt, disruptive nature of modeling that you were talking about, maybe that is a show that every software startup needs to hear. And if there was a way to somehow bubble that up in a fashion that even though, you know, we only have 800 listeners and TechCrunch has 8 million or whatever, um, you know, maybe there's a way we can make sure that the right people are, are finding the stories that would benefit them. That's, what, that's really what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things is maybe, maybe as, as a group, all the tech podcasts could approach a couple of sites like Mashable and TechCrunch and say, hey, why don't you pick one, you know, one of the good shows that we all put out hmm. a week or something. Okay. And put an, Ooh, and, and podcast of the week. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Podcast of the week on Mashable. Tech podcast yeah. of the week, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's cool. That's, an, that's, a, that's a clever idea because there's, there's really not that many of them. You know, there's maybe, it depends on how far you want to stretch it out, you know, right. a dozen or so that are right. regularly produced. Um, you know, there are interview shows like Mixture G. There are ones that cover open source, like uh, the Code Log. They're more startup focused, um, like um, you know the uh, startups. The rest of us, Rob Wallings, yep, Carlos, and there are two shows. Um, but it's not that many, really. I don't yeah. think. So it wouldn't be and, hard to do that. And and I and this is an instinct. This is something I plan to do. That maybe that community, maybe it's useful for others as well. I need to consume. I need to know the fact that I don't know, you know, this is essentially my job. Uh, if I'm a podcaster, I really need to know about the other podcasters, not in a competitive way, because I absolutely do not see myself competing with you more in a collaborative way. We are adding to this story. What, what is the story? What else is out there? You know, that's, well, it actually In behooves all of us to know what, what the other's doing, Absolutely. because if, we, if we're both interviewing Jason Cohen, <laughs> yeah. it's better that we get a different angle and a different a- aspect of, of the Jason Cohen story than if we both do the same thing. That's, that's a fantastic point. Yeah, and you know, really, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> the people who listen to these podcasts are listening because they're really interested in tech and startups, and there's a lot of hours in the week where people are doing things where they got nothing to listen to. They're driving or working out or doing chores on the house and so 
it's not like, oh, this is the one podcast I listen to. I mean, there might be some people like that, but a lot of times it's right. just like there are people are searching for something, anything to listen to where they're on the damn treadmill, you know? Exactly. And, uh, you know, it's not like it's just one or the other. It's just give me, you know, they want a handful of, of really yeah. good stuff to listen to. And, and, and again, my dream is somehow to make it easy for those people to find a topical uh, show, for example, from whoever is produces these things, and uh, you know that has met a certain quality bar, and be able to really have something useful at that point. But isn't that what IT conversations is? I don't know. I mean, maybe it already exists. Sure. That well, that's where Stack Over. I mean, Stack Overflow came through IT conversations. Okay. And essentially, the, it's itc conversationsnetwork.org. Yeah, I've been there before. And I kind of think that that is, okay. that seems a lot what you're talking about. All right. Yeah, I, I'm not going to reinvent something that exists. It's, I just, if it exists, <laughs> I'll promote it and try to latch onto it and, and be more effective with it. Yeah, I used to, um, I used to watch stuff or listen to stuff off there all the time. I haven't as much just because so much of my, so many of my podcasts I listen to come through iTunes now and I just subscribe and it's, uh, and I you know, only think yeah. about it. But before, before I had, uh, before iTunes, I would just, just kind of go to, you know, IT, IT conversations periodically, see what, see what new stuff was interesting. But the thing about IT conversations is I think they produce everything mm-hmm. versus, not necessarily, I think, because Justin, I think what happens is that, you know, they do have some shows that um, are more within their network, but they get a lot of, a lot of their stuff come from conferences. People have just recorded at conferences, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, well, how do we get on there then? Yeah. Maybe send them an email. I don't know. But, but here's another part of that story. So again, now we're talking about a, a very small sample of the community, not the community itself. And right. how do we also extend this into a conversation? How, is there a way to make it just a natural part of doing our job that each of us tells the story in some fashion, whether that's on their own blog or on their own podcast, but somehow really, you know, collectively tell our industry story because that's incredibly vibrant. And a big part of going back to the Business of Software Conference, listening to Dan Bricklin really uh, hammered that home for me. You know, this guy invented the spreadsheet just talking about the early days of our industry. I mean, it was awesome. And, <laughs> you know, we're in the early days of something all the time, right? So if we could get that out there so that our kids could go back and laugh at us, I mean, that's, you know, I, 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 I don't want, you know, John's kids so, to have to laugh at me. I want them to laugh at John. You know? So it's kind of like... Um, you know, Aborigine tribal law, where you where you're sitting around a fire, uh, a fire campfire, telling the stories, and you can go to this place, yes, and uh, read all of the history about Steve Jobs, and Absolutely. I guess that's like a subset of Wikipedia. Well, no, but the, the difference is Wikipedia <laughs> is telling someone else's story, and the purpose that I want is people to tell their own story. I, I see. I'm, I'm, it's a lot more interesting for me to hear Steve Jobs tell his story than to hear you tell Steve Jobs' story, and yet it's very interesting to me to hear you tell your story. Um, And the other pragmatic aspect of this is sometimes we actually get around the fire. Uh, I I spoke at a community event this weekend, and a day of .NET event in Grand Rapids. It amazes me how many people will give up their Saturday to get together with, you know, there are 200 people who are essentially volunteering to get together and just learn from each other. That's amazing to me. Well, how do we connect 
in person with the right stories, then there becomes a tagging element that's also human and geographical. How do I find someone, you know, in a 25 mile an hour, a 25 mile radius who has experience on Windows Azure and in the space of, you know, I don't know, enterprise content management who can come and speak at this community event or who I can call and, you know, solve a problem for my company. Can I pay them, et cetera? That is another part of this picture in my mind. It's all there. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stories exist. We're just, we're not connecting with them as well as we could be. Let's use technology to connect ourselves with the most interesting stories to each of us. Well, certainly something to think about. Well, Justin, we should probably uh, think about wrapping this up, I think, right? We're about the hour and a half mark. Yep, we just, just hit the hour and a half mark. Yeah, I told um, you I could just keep talking and talking. So, <laughs> Well, not as much as Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I have certainly enjoyed talking with both of you and would welcome any opportunity to do so. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. It was a lot of fun meeting you. And uh, it's always interesting to talk to uh, fellow tech podcasters and get a sense of how they're thinking about it and what they're doing. And Well, I think I also look forward to meeting you at next year's Business of Software Conference. Awesome. Yeah, we, yeah, we got to get there somehow, Justin. Well, we're going to do it. We're gonna Is it going to be in it. Boston You'd... again? It hasn't been determined yet, I think. They had been alternating between Boston and San Francisco. And then uh, people were pressuring, hey, let's leave it in Boston. I think it's easier for the UK people to come to Boston. So, unknown. Right, right. Wherever well, it is, I hope to see you there. That will be yeah. awesome. Yeah, that, would, that, would be, uh, totally. that would be great. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. Thanks a lot for taking the time, Patrick. It was really nice meeting you. And uh, um, yeah, it was cool. I have now subscribed to, I've listened to uh, two of your most recent shows. So I, the first time I listened to your show was Justin pointed out to me was the one where you were talking about the business conference, business software conference. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, yeah, check this guy out, man. He has so much passion. So I, I listened to that. Yeah. And I listened to the more recent one. And because uh, you're actually fairly a shorter show, right? It's about like 20, 30 minutes tops, right? Yeah. And how do you decide that? I mean, how do you decide to, that you're willing to go an hour and a half? What's up with that? Well, Justin just can't shut me up is pretty much it. I just keep talking. And he's like, yeah, okay, fine. Now and a half goes. It's just, it's just our, to be honest, we, we actually, we've done, we've done experiments and iterations with the show. And we tried to do a daily show where we kept it to 15 oh minutes a day. And we found out that we, we could not, for the life of us, keep it to 15 minutes. We, like, well, we couldn't it even was, do 30. And the people who listened to us... It was barely possible to keep it to 30. So we thought, right, okay, sold this. Wow. You know, we're just going to have to... We're going to have to do it once a week. Yeah. And basically, the hour and a half just suits us. It, I don't know why. It just suits well, our style. It's it's because... Um, okay. Well, because I, you know, I just got feedback from a friend of mine. He said he he was catching... He'd got behind in the shows and he just went and listened to the five daily shows. And he's like, yeah, they weren't that good. And he's like, wow. you know... And a lot of people said that. They just weren't liking as much. And I think part of the reason was... We tend to go off on tangents and we yeah. argue about stuff and we tell stories and we just kind of just it's kind of like a laid back chat at like a cafe. You know, we're I like just, that. Well, we're, we're like we're like when you you know, when you're like at the workplace and you're working with like 10 other coders and then you've got two interesting coders in the corner who are just talking to each other totally all day about random off shit. and not getting anything done. <laughs> <laughs> but That's you're like, what we're like. you're like, you don't want to tell them to shut up because it's kind of interesting. And so you're just kind yeah. of. Yeah.